It is good to be here uh, with you again uh, while uh, Dennis and Chris lean are away and have a chance to worship with you and pray with you and, and lead you in the study of God's Word. Um, the message today is on the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Passion. So I was speaking to uh, Garth before the service, and evidently your pastor, Dennis, has been going through or is, has finished uh, going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, may have already covered this passage. And what I'm going to do today is overkill. Uh, but uh, in a very meaningful way, uh, you can't overkill going over the Word of God. But I do pray that what we do this morning will be beneficial uh, in our Christian lives. So I've entitled the message, The Lord's Prayer, The Lord's Passion. And um, my initial uh, impetus for this message came from an article I read a number of years ago by a um, fantastic uh, Roman Catholic New Testament scholar, uh, Raymond E. Brown. And I would say, at least in terms of uh, Catholic studies are concerned, uh, Raymond Brown was the premier uh, New Testament scholar in the late 20th century, early 21st century. He died a few years ago. And he wrote this article entitled, The Paternoster as an Eschatological Prayer. And um, very interesting, um, uh, stimulating uh, article that has meant a lot to me uh, in terms of how I understand the Lord's Prayer and what it means for me as I pray the various phrases that are in that prayer. Uh, that article, uh, first of all, some terms that might not be familiar to you, uh, paternoster is simply the Latin for our Father. And um, you will sometimes, if you've been in Roman Catholic circles or acquainted with uh, various uh, TV shows that sometimes refer to this, uh, someone who's given penance will be told to uh, say a Hail Mary uh, and say 17 paternosters and you'll be forgiven, something like that. Uh, and paternoster simply means to pray the Lord's Prayer. And then when Brown looks at the Lord's Prayer, he says, I think it is an eschatological prayer. And what he means by that, um, well, first of all, the word eschatological um, simply comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. So eschatology is the doctrine of the last things, the things that will happen in the last days. There's a great little story told about a seminary student uh, who was um, sitting in a, um, a room outside a classroom one day, and he was um, sobbing almost, had a very uh, downcast look on his face. And a fellow student came along and asked him, why are you so sad? And the guy said, I just took a theology exam. And the last question was an entire essay on eschatology. 
and I know I did not do very well on it. In fact, I don't even know what eschatology means. And the student said to him, hey, cheer up, fella. It's not like it's the end of the world. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I hope, that, hope that worked. Anyway, uh, what Raymond Brown does as he deals with his prayer is that he takes the Lord's Prayer and says, I don't think that Jesus is giving this prayer to his disciples just as an ordinary, everyday prayer, as important as that might be, for sure. But he's saying he is giving this prayer to his disciples as those who will live their lives in light of the end times, in light of the fact that this world is coming to an end and there will be a judgment day and there will be a rewards day and what you do with your life as a result of praying this prayer has important consequences. So what Brown says is, what we hope to show, however, is that the petitions of the Paternoster do not refer to daily circumstances, but to the final times. He says, the Paternoster is a prayer for the Christian community, for those who believe that Jesus is the way to God and that the new and final dispensation has come. And I agree with him on this. And so what we're going to do is go through this handout that I've got there for you. And in, in, in case you're a, a sermon time watcher, um, you can gauge how fast we're going through the sermon by how fast we go through this handout. Uh, so that'll give you some either some uh, uh, discouragement or encouragement. Um, Martin Kaler, another um, wonderful uh, New Testament scholar in the first part of the 20th century, said, the Gospels are really passion narratives with extended introductions. And again, I believe he is right. Everything in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, all that stuff you get in those first chapters is to prepare you for the last chapters that describe the passion of Jesus Christ, his arrest, his trial, his suffering, and his resurrection. And so in addition to what Brown says with regards to the Lord's Prayer being about eschatology, I want to also add that on the way to eschatology, it's also about the Lord's passion. And because it's about the Lord's passion, it's also about us. So I hope to unpack that as we go along. So maybe first of all, before we get started here, we should actually read the Lord's Prayer uh, as found in Matthew chapter 6. And we'll start reading at verse 5 and go through verse 15. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5 and going through verse 15. Jesus says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. 
Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now that finishes the prayer, but then immediately upon the conclusion of the prayer, Jesus then says this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, we're going to go through this prayer now and see how in many ways it prepares us for the end of the gospel with the Lord's passion, but also prepares us for being those who will live in the end of the days. First of all, notice the setting. Uh, we often refer to the sermon in which this prayer is contained as the Sermon on the Mount. Well, interestingly, when we come to the Lord's Passion, there is a prayer that occurs on the Mount of Olives. And that prayer has somewhat to do with the Lord's Prayer that was given in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer comes in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. The Lord's Passion, of course, comes at the end of Jesus' ministry. And then, not in Matthew, but in Luke in particular, in, the, in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples come to him and ask him, Lord, would you please teach us how to pray? Well, interestingly, when Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives at the end of the gospel story, as the last thing he does before being arrested and taken to trial, he has with him three disciples whom he is teaching about prayer and temptation and what his passion really means. He has with him Peter and James and John. The prayer starts off by Jesus saying, Our Father in heaven, this is how you are to pray. Well, interestingly, when we come to the Lord's Passion and the Lord's Prayer on, in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, Mark in particular records that Jesus starts that prayer by the word Abba, Father. 
and then says to him, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then Matthew 26 and Luke 22, which are parallel versions of the Gethsemane account, they don't have the word Abba, but they do personalize things a bit more by having Jesus say, my father, before he asks his father to take the cup from him. And then you might notice that when you read the NIV, which is where, this, where I've taken the Lord's Prayer from for this handout, it differs from what we normally uh, traditionally say when we recite the Lord's Prayer. The NIV has our Father in heaven. Uh, almost certainly you'll remember growing up and, and saying the Lord's Prayer in church that we traditionally say our Father which art in heaven or our Father who is in heaven. Well, the NIV, NIV in many translations shortened that to our Father in heaven. But in some ways, I think adding those extra words in gives a bit more flavor to what this is about. In other words, it's not about our earthly father. It's about our heavenly father. So it really is more cumbersome in the Greek. It is our father who art in heaven or our father who is in heaven. And I think by adding that word heaven to the description of our father, it not simply helps to differentiate him from an earthly father and a heavenly father, but it also begins at the very start of this prayer to focus the disciples on the fact that we have to do with a father who is in heaven. And that heaven is indeed our goal. In Romans 8, verses 15 to 17, when Paul is talking about the hope that we have as Christians, he talks about how the Spirit of God comes into our hearts, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. But let me read the passage to you. Paul says in Romans 8, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, that is by that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And then notice what Paul says next. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, there's the passion, in order that we may also share in his glory. And there's the eschatology. There's the last times. So I think just adding that phrase, our Father in heaven, doesn't just differentiate him as a heavenly father versus an earthly father, but calls attention to the fact that we will, like Jesus, 
have to suffer in this world. But those sufferings will not compare with the glory that God has reserved for those who can call him Abba, Father. So it's so important, I think, to have those words there. Next, Jesus says the first thing you should pray for when you begin to pray is this. You say to the Father, hallowed be your name. I list on the panel there for you beside that phrase the fact that in John 12, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And in many ways, that idea of hallowing a name versus glorying a name, in many ways, they're quite comparable. Now, I want to read to you an extended passage from John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. You may remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have passion narratives in which Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane that grievous prayer, that laborious prayer where he says to the Father, if at all possible, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. John doesn't have that particular incident in his gospel. Rather, in the middle of the gospel, just before we come to the, the chapter where things begin to move toward Jesus um, and his disciples in the upper room and the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion, just before that, John has this passage which in many ways has the same kind of themes as we find in the Lord's Prayer. Let me read that passage to you. Again, John 20, verses 20 to 36. I'm going to read it and, and make some comments as we go along. Now this is right after, immediately after, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And it says in verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now, what we're supposed to understand here is that when these, Greece, when these Greeks, these Gentiles, come and ask to see Jesus, that triggers something in Jesus. In fact, it triggers this whole idea that he's coming to the end of his ministry and the next step will be his giving his life for the sins of the world. Listen to what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My aunt, my father will honor the one who serves me. So in essence, he's saying this about his disciples. But then he changes the direction of what he says just slightly. And he says, now my soul is troubled. Do you remember in the Gospels that as Jesus leaves the upper room and climbs up the Mount of Olives, going to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. Well, what Jesus says here corresponds to that. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is that what I should pray? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world, this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's talking about his crucifixion, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And then, skipping a few verses, Jesus says to them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left. He says to the disciples, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. In other words, that you might become the children of the Heavenly Father who do His will just as I, the Son of the Father, do the will of the Father. And then, one more note here. In John 17 and verse 11, in the midst of what has often been called Jesus' high priestly prayer, the prayer that Jesus prays in the upper room just before going to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, and addresses him as Holy Father. The same word that is used in the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, when it says, Father, hallowed, hagiadzo in Greek, Father, hallowed be your name. In John 17, he calls him holy, hagios, Father. And that ties those two passages together. And then I would also just point out that in John 20, and verse 17, Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, who was the first one to see him after his resurrection, 
Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So notice how he includes the disciples and says, he's my Father, but he's also your Father, the one to whom you pray that Lord's Prayer that I taught you. And then in the Lord's Prayer, the next thing Jesus says is, may your kingdom come. And the interesting thing about this is that when Jesus comes to the Lord's, comes to his passion, one of the last things he talks about in the upper room before going to the Garden of Gethsemane is the kingdom. He says to the disciples that my, he, he refers to my father's kingdom. And what he says is this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, so important for us to see here that Jesus talks about the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer, but he also talks about it in his passion. His passion is what's going to establish that kingdom. And one day, when that kingdom is finally and completely established in the eschaton, Jesus will eat and drink anew with his disciples. And then I would also note this. In Luke 22, 28 to 30, Jesus says to the disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Jesus tells the disciples to pray for the kingdom of God to come, the end of the story tells us how that kingdom will come in the Lord's passion. But it also tells us that we will be members of that kingdom when it is established. And then the next thing Jesus tells his disciples to pray in the Lord's prayer is, your will be done. Well, Jesus himself exemplifies that as he prays in Gethsemane. He indeed says, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And I didn't give you the Greek here, but I'll just go ahead and tell you that the phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, um, your will be done, and Jesus' statement in his passion experience in Gethsemane is the same phrase. May your will be done. So Jesus not only 
gives this prayer to the disciples to pray, he does it himself. He prays it himself in his passion. And then the next thing that happens is that the will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Interestingly, at the end of the Lord's ministry, again, just before he goes to Gethsemane and is arrested, Jesus says in John 17, talking to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now that pattern is left for us. How do we glorify God? How do we bring God glory? How do we hallow his name? How do we glorify him? By doing the work that he gave us to do. Living the lives that he gave us to live. Doing the things that he called us to do. Being good representatives of Jesus Christ in the world. Then, it seems as if in some way the prayer takes a little bit of a different focus when Jesus says, the next thing you should pray is, give us today our daily bread. Now, um, let me just say that over the years, um, scholars have spent lots of time, lots of ink, and lots of paper Indeed, trees have lost, entire forests have lost their lives in order for this to be explained. Uh, what does it mean to give us today our daily bread? And one of the reasons why scholars have spent so much time on that is because we don't actually know what that Greek word means. In other words, it says, give us today our epiousion bread. What does that word mean? Well, some of the suggestions are, it means daily. Or maybe it means give us tomorrow's bread. Or possibly it means to give us that future bread. Well, I'll take a cue from that and say, give us that eschatological bread. Or give us a foretaste of that bread that we will eat with you in the kingdom of God. I listed four passages for you there. Excuse me, five actually. Notice that in Luke 14, 15, after Jesus tells a certain story, one of the respondents, one of the hearers of his story says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. More literally, what he actually says is this, blessed is the man who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That is a statement that's looking forward to the future. This person is saying, our entire hope in this world is to be able to come to the end of our lives and come to that last day and eat bread with all the saints gathered around the table around God. Blessed is the man who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. John 6, Jesus says, It is my Father who gives you the true 
bread from heaven. Interestingly, bread plays an important part in the passion. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he also says this in John 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. For whenever you eat this bread, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, quoting Jesus, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I think it's almost certain that when Jesus tells the disciples, pray, give us this day our daily bread, and again, we don't know for sure what that word means. I think that word is oriented toward the last day. In other words, whenever we do have our daily bread given to us, and whenever we eat bread, when we partake in the Lord's Supper together, may that bread be a foretaste of that great eschatological bread we will eat at the end of time when we all sit at the banqueting table of the Lamb and eat bread in the kingdom of God. Next, Jesus said, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Very important thing that Jesus, of course, says here. Now, this, believe it or not, this is probably the hardest thing Jesus asks us to do as Christians. Now, you might think, aren't there harder things? Wouldn't it be harder to be a, uh, someone who gave your life? Wouldn't it be harder to go several thousand miles across the ocean and live there? Uh, with very few furloughs and spend your entire life in a place where you not, may not even be welcomed? Wouldn't it be harder to be someone who was martyred for the cause of Christ? Well, I don't think so. I think the hardest thing we're ever called upon to do is to forgive others like Jesus forgave us. In Matthew 26, when Jesus distributes the elements, the bread and the wine. He says that the, the wine symbolizes his blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. In order to forgive our sins, it cost Christ his life, it cost God his son, it cost the death of Jesus Christ. And to symbolize that forgiveness, when Jesus is on the cross, he actually prays, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they are doing. It's one thing to be persecuted for the cause of Christ. That's hard. It's another thing and a harder thing to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. What I find so interesting about the Lord's Prayer is this. And I called attention to it before just to get our hearts prepared for it. Jesus prays this, gives this whole prayer to the disciples to pray. And near the end of that prayer, we have this line, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then when the prayer concludes, almost as if he is reading the disciples' minds, he says to them, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus gives the disciples this whole long prayer, and then the only commentary that he makes on it is, yes, I meant what I said. You have to forgive other people their sins, just like your heavenly Father forgives you your sins. And that's what makes it so important. Jesus then says, we should pray to God, lead us not into temptation. And what I want you to notice is how that shows up big time when you come to the Lord's passion. When Jesus is with Peter and James and John on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as he is beginning to enter into that, that laborious prayer session with his father, he says to them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He says to the disciples earlier that night, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And then in Revelation 3, he says to, his, to one of the churches there, he says to them, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is going to be the end of their world. And as you know, many of these disciples to whom he is speaking either were martyred or in other ways persecuted on account of their faith and on account of their testimony. And finally, the last petition is this. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. And that goes along with the prayer to, to not lead us into temptation. Now, I think it's 
important for us to remember that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, even before the Sermon on the Mount, he had a temptation experience with the evil one. He was tempted in three ways. The devil tempted him to turn stones into bread. He tempted him to fall down and worship him. He tempted him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple in order to prove that he was the son of God and that God would catch him before he fell and hurt himself. And for all three of those temptations, Jesus answered them with scripture, told Satan to get away from him, and triumphed victoriously in those temptations. But what is so important for us to recognize about those temptations is that ultimately they were not about satisfying Jesus' hunger or testing God as to whether God would save him. And they were not about actually having all the kingdoms of the world. Rather, they were about whether Jesus would be ultimately obedient to his father and would carry out the mission he had been sent to accomplish, even to the point of death. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been tempted to do something wrong? Okay, I will not ask you to raise your hands because if you're honest, every hand in here will go up. Furthermore, I won't ask you if you succumb to those temptations because if I did, every hand in here would go up. But let me just set those temptations in perspective. That internet site that you're tempted to look at and you realize you shouldn't. That piece of gossip that you are invited to join in, but you shouldn't. That little theft in the office at work that you're tempted to join in, but shouldn't. Those temptations are not about those temptations. They're about getting you off track in your discipleship and ultimately ruining your testimony and making you fall to the evil one. They're all about derailing you from following the Lord Jesus Christ and ending up in the right place. So, brothers and sisters, I believe the Lord's Prayer is an important prayer. Should it be prayed every day? Maybe. That's not a bad thing to do. could be a good thing to do. But when you pray it, remember, it's not just about today. It's about the passion of Jesus Christ. It's about the ultimate conclusion of all things. It's about you finishing well. And it's about your entrance at the end of time into the kingdom of God. So, my request right now is that you would stand with me and we will recite.
the Lord's Prayer together. And while you're standing, after we pray, you might as well just keep standing because I'm pretty sure there's a song coming up. All right, pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.